The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speaker. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice from your own physician. Hello, my name is Mike Wang. I'm a neurosurgeon at the University of Miami. And my name is Sigurd Bourbon. I'm an orthopedic surgeon at the University of California in San Francisco. Hi, Sig. Uh, thanks for doing this. I wanted to today talk a little bit about a topic that might be controversial in the deformity world or maybe in the non-deformity world. And that is, you know, are we in maybe 10 years from now still going to be doing PSOs or pedicle subtraction osteotomies for deformity? And the reason I raise this question is because as we see the literature, we understand this to be a very complex procedure. And maybe you can tell us about, you know, what you think is is the risk involved in doing these often necessary surgeries. Yeah. Well, Mike, let's start with talking about the trends in pedicle subtraction osteotomy surgery or three-column osteotomies for correction of deformity. I think we've clearly seen a, a rapid rise in the rates of these surgeries or the prevalence of these surgeries. Uh, that's been well demonstrated in the literature. And I think a lot of this might stem from recognition of sagittal alignment. I think some of the work that's been done uh, with the uh, SRS swab classification suggesting that our lumbar lordosis ought to be within 10 degrees of our pelvic incidence. Only then do we recognize the extent of deformity correction that would be appropriate to try and realign the spine. When we need 20, 30, or more degrees of correction, a three-column osteotomy becomes our best option. And we've seen a dramatic rate of rise, both in the neurosurgical community as well as the orthopedic surgery community of, of PSOs. And with that, we've seen some dramatic complications, as, as you recognize. Um, in terms of uh, some of the risks associated with this operation, I think uh, this is an operation that can involve significant blood loss. This is an operation that's got a high incidence of neural injury. Our work with the Scully Risk Study suggesting it with three-column osteotomies for sagittal plane deformity, uh, more than 20% of patients having some decrement of their lower extremity motor score. Uh, we've seen issues with rod breakage. We've seen issues with junctional pathology and junctional failure. Um, so number one is an operation that's uh, happening with a rapid increase in prevalence in both the neurosurgical and orthopedic community and then uh, number two, th this is associated with a high rate of complications, neural and, and other. So even though often necessary, I mean, it is something that can be harrowing for the patient and surgeon. And, and I would tell you that I, you know, I've done these not nearly as many as you, and, and they're tough cases. And I think that maybe that has been spurring the development of other alternatives. And, and we hear people talking more about using ALIF for uh, deformity correction in the sagittal plane. And we hear about the anterior column release uh, in terms of sectioning the ALL to try to get uh, a different set of risks, certainly. And uh, we, we hear more and more about ponte osteotomies being done at multiple levels to try to get correction to maybe a semi-flexible spine. What, what are you seeing as the trends that might, you know, rival the PSO? Yeah, important question, Mike, is uh, once you recognize the patient's presenting with a sagittal myelalignment, then uh, how do we go ahead and, and realign the spine? I think an important where, place to start here is, in general, why are we doing three-column osteotomies? And in, in my experience, um, uh, one of the more p common reasons uh, early in my practice was certainly for rheumatoid spondylitis or for ankylosing spondylitis. And quite honestly, I think largely due to disease-modifying drugs, uh, TNF-alpha inhibitors, et cetera, uh, we're not seeing that much symptomatic rheumatoid spondylitis or ankylosing spondylitis. And that's all good news. That's really great. Which, which is terrific news, absolutely. Uh, to me, that's the prototypical case where a three-column osteotomy is appropriate. Of course, you know, Smith-Peterson described the uh, Smith-Peterson osteotomy, osteoclasis of the anterior column for this patient population. But in general, uh, Thomason's work has brought into favor a three-column osteotomy. But I bring this up as a background because that's an area where the prevalence has, is reducing. 
The other area, of course, that we all see is the patient who's had prior spine surgery. And that's probably the most common reason for doing a three-column osteotomy. Somebody's had an iatrogenic three-column, or, 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 or an iatrogenic circumferential fusion where we want to go ahead and move forwards with a three-column osteotomy to correct that. Now, where I think this is important, Mike, is, is recognizing that if, if somebody's truly got a solid circumferential fusion, then our PSO remains an appropriate operation. In fact, it really, uh, uh, we don't have a lot of other options. Our ACRs, for example, our, our uh, uh, posterior-based uh, uh, type 2 osteotomies or pontiosteotomies aren't going to work with a circumferential fusion. So I think we're still locked in there. Uh, I'm hoping that we're going to see less iatrogenic circumferential malalignment. Um, and, and again, importantly, the pedicles attraction osteotomy then has a relatively narrow indication in the patient who's got a circumferential fusion uh, and it requires more than 20 degrees of correction. I think recognizing some alternatives to the PSO is often important when we've got mobile disc spaces and um, when we've got some alternative techniques. The first one you brought up, the ACR, I think is a terrific option. I think in a patient who's fused in malalignment from L4 to S1, and L3-4 ACR is, is probably my least invasive and most reliable way to get a short correction. Where do I see that most commonly? A high-grade dysplastic olisthesis that's been fused at L5-S1 or L4-S1. I think you recognize this as a difficult problem. 3-4 is an open disc, and with an ACR, I can get that patient nicely into realignment and compensate for the real challenge of a lumbar sacral kyphosis. And my alternative there is to do a PSO at S1, for example. And that's, that's a pretty tough operation. So the ACR has become by far my favorite operation for that. Uh, other alternatives, uh, looking at hyperlordotic uh, uh, lumbar inner body implants, I think using that more commonly from L4 to S1. You know, in my hands, if L4 to S1 is open, then that's a tremendous opportunity to get 30 or more degrees of correction in the right place, mm -hmm. right? Where 60% of our lordosis ought to be. So hyperlordotic implants from L4 to S1 are a great solution. Uh, the ACR, in my hands, are a great solution above L4. And um, I think even with some of the new technologies with uh, posterior-based interbody uh, fusions, mm -hmm. um, you know, Fred Sweet presented as a Best Paper Award a couple of years ago the work that he had done with releasing the anterior column from the back, mm -hmm. uh, perhaps with using expandable implants in some cases. I think even with good T-lift technique, uh, we might be able to uh, reduce some of the burden of PSOs. And I'm, I'm glad you bring that up because there's now this sort of European-American controversy about the non-harmonious correction of lordosis or rest, restoration of lordosis, and most of our PSOs are up a little bit higher, right? And as you said, L4-S1 is really where the lordosis should be. How do you feel that factors into whether or not PSO is growing or diminishing in terms of popularity? Yeah, great question, Mike. And again, uh, recognize we want to have two-thirds of our lordosis in the uh, lower lumbar spine, really from L4 to S1. And uh, you and I wrote a paper with Praveen Mumineni where, uh, interestingly, we reported a high complication rates in P PSOs. And the other interesting aspect of that paper that the reviewers commented upon was the predominance of our osteotomies quite high. In fact, most of our osteotomies were at L3 or above. Um, I, I think that that is a problem with regard to not getting a harmonious correction of deformity and recognizing that we need to correct our deformity down lower. Um, with regard to what's the implication of PSOs, golly, I, I still think uh, doing a PSO at the sacrum is, is challenging. I, I worry about uh, fixation there. I worry about healing in that area. And even in L4 and L5, certainly there's a higher risk of neural injury. Now, 
Is uh, a foot drop a less severe neural injury than a quad weakness? Yes, but our rates of neural injury, I think, are going to be more significant in L4 and L5. Mm -hmm. And again, that's where I think coming into A, preventative strategies, so not creating three column, or not creating circumferential fusions, mile alignment in the first place, that's our best strategy. And B, doing things with the anterior column down low, especially four to one, or with the ACR at three, four, especially there, uh, but getting our correction down low is, is going to be a, a more useful strategy. So, you know, I've struggled with this as well, and, and my answer to this partly was to do the mini open PSO, and we published on this in an effort to try to reduce the blood loss and, and all those issues. So I think we're always looking for strategies, right, to, to make this, when we have to do a PSO, safer. What are you doing now in the patient you've properly selected, requires a pedicle subtraction osteotomy? What do you do? What are the specific measures you take to try to minimize that the risk of complications. Yeah, terrific, Mike. And, and I think uh, number one is, is preoperative optimization. Mm -hmm. So we had a whole session at that at NAS uh, today in terms of patient preparation for surgery. And um, we've got a checklist uh, that we're now employing uh, to try and identify some of the modifiable risk factors for complications and bring patients to surgery in a healthier state. So we look at some of the following things. We look at bone quality. So in general, we're not doing elective deformity surgery in patients with a DEXA score of less than minus 2.5. We've got teriparatide, we've got options to treat that. Uh, we're looking at body mass index. We showed that patients with a body mass index of more than 35 have a, uh, a seven-fold higher rate of readmission and reoperation than patients in a range of 25 to 35. So to that end, we're not doing elective spine surgery on patients who are morbidly obese. Um, next area, hemoglobin A1C. Uh, we know that diabetes is highly associated with infection and other uh, perioperative complications. We're not doing elective spine surgery on patients who present with hemoglobin A1C more than seven. Uh, a really important area is uh, recognizing perioperative narcotic utilization. So uh, one of the ACTI expert sessions earlier today was on opioids and uh, the epidemic of opioids. Patients who are using more than 50 milligrams of morphine equivalent aren't coming in for elective spine surgery. We're trying to reduce that by 50% because perioperative pain control and complications related to opioids is high. A couple of other areas I'll just identify briefly. Uh, nutrition. Uh, patients with a serum albumin le less than 3.1. Again, these are all red flags. These are auto-populated uh, preoperatively. Serum albumin less than uh, uh, 3.1. Malnutrition, I think, is really under-recognized, especially in our deformity patients. Uh, and interestingly, malnutrition is just, in just as common in patients with a BMI more than 40 than it is in patients with a BMI of less than 20. So uh, uh, a problem that, that applies widely. We're not bringing these patients to elective spine surgery until we could write their nutrition. Uh, mental health, making sure patients are coming to uh, surgery with anxiety and depression status that's optimized. And the final area, there are a couple others, but the final area I just want to briefly emphasize is a, a home health situation. Making sure that um, our patients are coming to surgery with some plan for their disposition. Somebody's going to be with them and taking care of them at home or some resources uh, for home care. We found that patients who go to a short-term nursing facility are 11-fold more likely to get readmitted than patients who go home. So we're really making some efforts to get patients home. That type of preoperative preparation, I think, has got the best potential to try and reduce our complications. That's really excellent. Thank you for the great advice and your input on this important topic. Well, thanks, Mike. Thanks for your discussion.